Hello, welcome to this episode of the Southland Health and Wellness Hour podcast. My name is Rhonda Jackson, your host and coordinating producer for the Center for Community Media. The Southland Health and Wellness Hour is not the traditional health and wellness podcast, nor is it intended to provide medical advice. This is a community-focused and engaged podcast for residents of South Chicago and the Chicago Southland. Individual and community stories and situations serve as a foundation for discussions where we can begin to address unanswered questions about health inequities and concerns and where we might find possible solutions. This podcast brings together community members, leaders, organizations, alongside topic experts to address social trends, a variety of health and wellness topics, and to provide community resources to improve the lives of our listeners. The guest statements are their own and do not reflect the policies or opinions of Governor State University. Thank you so much for joining us. If I were to ask you what the leading cause of death in the United States is every year, many of you would answer cancer. Cancer is actually the second leading cause of death in the U.S. after heart disease. Each year, well over half a million people lose their lives to cancer. When we discuss cancer as a nation, the conversation is usually either about lung cancer or breast cancer. Today, we'll be discussing the sixth leading cause of cancer in the United States, and it may surprise you. The Oxford Dictionary defines cancer as a disease caused by an uncontrolled division of abnormal cells in a part of the body. The sixth leading cause of cancer in the United States is bladder cancer. Yes, cancer can occur in your bladder. And while men are four times more likely to develop bladder cancer than women, women are more likely to die from bladder cancer than men. In this episode, we will learn the whys behind that statistic. We'll get to talk about the experience of getting diagnosed with and treated for bladder cancer with bladder cancer survivor and GSC professor of English, Dr. Carrie Morris. We'll also learn important facts about the disease and about the importance of securing research funding from Dr. Stephanie Chisholm, the Director of Education and Advocacy at Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, or BEACON. We have a lot to cover today. Let's get started. Our first guest is Dr. Carrie Morris. She is our very own professor of English and director of writing across the curriculum. She's a bladder cancer survivor and the author of the blog, Cancer is Not a Gift. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Morris. Welcome to the podcast. Our second guest is Dr. Stephanie Chisholm. She is the director of education and advocacy for Beacon, the only advocacy organization specifically for bladder cancer. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Chisholm. Welcome to the podcast. Before we start, listeners, we want to invite you to contact us, comment about this podcast, and ask questions about bladder cancer and any other wellness topics that interest you. Visit our podcast website, where you'll find a link to drop us a line, as well as useful takeaways and accessible community resources. The website address is in the podcast description. I 
I think it's very possible that fairly early on in life, once we become aware of the concept of mortality, cancer takes on the role of dreaded specter and our growing understanding of human frailty. It becomes an enigmatic and ominous thing as we learn of or maybe even experience all of the different dangerous things in life. Most of the time, the threat takes the specific form of lung cancer or breast cancer. We're focusing on bladder cancer today because it's something that disproportionately impacts women and people of color, particularly Black men. Carrie, the name of your blog is Cancer is Not a Gift. This sentiment is contrary to popular books and cancer survivors who claim cancer is a gift that made them appreciate life. Let's explore what cancer is to you. Can you begin by sharing how you came to be diagnosed with bladder cancer? Yeah, I'd be glad to. I want to start first with just a, a really little bit of a shout out to a woman named Lori Cummings. She is a, an oncology nurse um, who had leukemia as a young adult. And in the New York Times feature, Picture Your Life After Cancer, uh, which was a series of photographs and people discussed life after a diagnosis of cancer. She said, no, no, cancer is not a blessing and never tell a cancer patient it is. And that made such an impact on me. And so I named my blog, Cancer is Not a Gift because of Lori. And I just always wanna give her credit for that. Um, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer um, after having um, copious amounts of blood in my urine. And I went to see my doctor. I was sent directly to an ER. And over a period of three days and uh, many tests, they made the diagnosis. On your blog, you shared that the support you received from BCAN was empowering and crucial. Why was this specialized support so important? Well, Beacon um, provided me, I, I think, with two big things. One was information, and then the other was community. Um, on their website, um, there's just so much information about bladder cancer in women and bladder cancer statistics and um, all sorts of webcasts that can tell you about um, uh, urinary diversions and uh, cystoscopies and all of that kind of thing. Um, they also host every year a, um, a yearly summit for bladder cancer survivors and their families or caregivers. And it's a time when um, everyone comes together and there are researchers there to talk to us about uh, bladder cancer. We can talk to um, advocates, people who do advocacy um, you know, in the Capitol, and we just get to meet each other. And so I, I think that community that I was able to establish or that Beacon was able to establish um, for me um, and the information are, are really what helped me survive, particularly in the early years. There's also a listserv, and while it's not, not focused, um, why, um, Beacon doesn't actually produce it, um, it's connected uh, with the bladder cancer community by Inspire, and there's just 
all sorts of conversations going on um, about bladder cancer and you can ask anything. I mean, anything. We have a guy there who you can tell him what your um, CT reports were and he will interpret your CT report because he's a radiologist who has had bladder cancer and all the way there to just getting um, emotional support. Stephanie, although men have a higher chance of developing bladder cancer than women, women are more likely to die from bladder cancer. Why is that? Well, as Carrie mentioned, I think, you know, going in to get appropriate care to get screened is really important. And she talked about having blood in her urine as a major sign. Some of the other signs of bladder cancer include urgency. You really have to go and frequency, you have to go a lot. And um, a lot of women don't realize that any blood that might be in their urine is actually coming from their bladder because of menstruation and other things. And typically when they see something that's amiss and maybe outside of a menstrual cycle, um, or if they're menopausal and they haven't had a menstrual cycle in a while, they automatically think, well, maybe this is something gynecologic. And they often will go to their primary care doctor or to their GYN practitioner who doesn't necessarily have the kind of equipment that you need to diagnose bladder cancer. It requires the doctor to go in with a special fiber optic camera and look around to do what they call a cystoscopy and look around. And that's traditionally done in the urologist's office. So when you think about a urologist, most women say, well, that's my dad's doctor or my husband's doctor. And so they may not get to the right practitioner to make that diagnosis. And sometimes that blood in your urine can be intermittent. It could start and stop. And just about the time you think you have to tell somebody, it might go away and you think, oh my goodness, I dodged a bullet. Where the reality is it may come back and it likely will come back if it's bladder cancer. And the other thing I think is important to point out is nobody should have blood in their urine. Those two things don't mix. And it may be bladder cancer. It could also be any one of a number of other things. So until you actually go in there to the expert, the urologist, to find out what the cause of that hematuria or blood in your urine is, you really won't know. So you need to go to the right doctor to make that diagnosis. So that's a big deal. And then women also don't get bladder cancer as often as men do. So men are diagnosed three or four times more often than women. And the average age for a bladder cancer diagnosis is in your mid 70s. So if anybody is outside of that age range and one of the known risk factors is smoking, um, if you're not a smoker and you're younger, for women in their 50s and 60s, they're told, oh, welcome to perimenopause, the time before you go through menopause where you stop having menstrual cycles. And for men, it's like, well, maybe you're just having enlarged prostate issues um, or maybe you have a kidney stone and they can look and find out if there's a kidney stone. But if there's not, they need to do further testing to determine what that blood in your urine is. And if it's visible, that's called gross hematuria, not just because it's a little gross to see blood in your urine, but because it's larger and bigger, you can see it. And then there's also that microscopic hematuria that shows up on a urine analysis test in your doctor's office. 
And then they might say, well, there's a little bit of blood in your urine. But if the doctor doesn't think of you having any risk factors, they may not be concerned right away. And many women accept a prescription to treat an, um, a urinary tract infection. And they might do this a couple of cycles before somebody says, you know, this infection's not going away. You still have that blood in your urine. Maybe you should go see the specialist, which is the urologist. Bladder cancer doesn't receive as much attention in the dialogue about cancer, despite it being the sixth highest cause of cancer in the United States. Are there barriers to discussing bladder cancer? Anytime you think of anything that has to do with bodily functions, anything that falls from you know your waist to your knees is kind of off limits. People don't talk about it. And we hear at the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network all the time from patients who said, I had no idea you could get cancer in your bladder until my doctor gave me that diagnosis. And for women, and men as well, they say, I never knew anybody who had bladder cancer. And that's why what Carrie was mentioning before about our Beacon Summit for patients and families and all the other programs that we do, it's so essential because it builds a sense of community because you might think, oh my gosh, nobody I know has ever had bladder cancer. Nobody ever gets bladder cancer. And all of a sudden to realize you're one of many people. This year alone, they expect 81,000 people to be diagnosed with bladder cancer in the United States. That's a lot of people. Um, it makes a big difference when you begin to realize that you're part of a bigger community. And it does help to find people who know literally what you're going through because the treatments for bladder cancer depend very much on your diagnosis. And we could cover that a little bit later in the, in the talk. Carrie, how long was it between the onset of what you now know to be cancer symptoms until your actual diagnosis? It was a, more than nine months. Um, so I started having what I thought were a series of UTIs. And that was um, in November and December of 2011. And, and they were really, really intense UTIs in the sense of just lots of urgency and frequency and nothing seemed to really make it better um and they just kept happening and i remember once calling the doctor and telling the nurse you know basically i think i i have another uti and she was able to just give me an antibiotic prescription just over the phone without uh, an examination which it turns out is a really not a good practice um, at all. So by August of 2012, so I first started those in December, then by August of 2012, that's when I started seeing massive amounts of blood. Um, and even then, it took me a while to put together that it was coming from my bladder. Um, I was going through menopause at the same time, and menopause makes you have just really inconsistent uh, periods. And, you know, it, it took a little while to put two and two together. Um, I have since been told by uh, one of the experts in the field, Dr. Gary Steinberg, that 
anybody, any woman, uh, well, anybody who's diagnosed with a UTI, after they're treated with an antibiotic, they need to have their bloods or their urine tested again to see if there's presence of blood. And if there is presence of blood, then they should go to, to a urologist. At that point, it's probably going to be microscopic. Um, for me, my diagnosis was not um, um, severe. So it ended up not, you know, in the long run hurting me. Um, but it took, it took nine months. You know, I'm sure I had bladder cancer in 2011. We're back from the break with our guests, GSU professor of English and bladder cancer survivor, Dr. Carrie Morris, and Dr. Stephanie Chisholm, the director of education and advocacy at Beacon. We spoke some about the diagnosis stage. Let's talk about the treatment stage. Carrie, when your diagnosis finally changed from a supposed series of urinary tract infections to bladder cancer, how did the treatments you received change? Well, things became much more invasive um, than, you know, just antibiotics. So I was in the hospital and I went through a series of tests. So I had a CT, an ultrasound, um, and then eventually a cystoscopy. And the cystoscopy is when they put the scope uh, up the urethra and then they look in the bladder. When they did that, they found tumors, they removed those tumors, and they sent those tumors out to be um, biopsied. But they assumed that, that those tumors were, um, were cancerous. And so I was first treated with a drug called mitomycin, which is a chemotherapy drug. But it is given to you uh, in a way that is called intravesically. So it's given to you directly into the bladder. It's not given to you systemically. Um, so the irritation that it causes um, is limited to the bladder. It's not a, you know, you don't lose your hair or that kind of thing. Um, they put that in, it's, it's kind of circulated in your bladder and then they clear it out. And then at that point, you know, within 12 hours, I think I was allowed to go home. After my bladder had healed from that first sur surgery, they have you do another surgery. They always um, do a follow-up um, for what is called a TURB. Terped, um, so they look to see if they've missed anything. Um, bladder cancer has a real habit of being... Um, underdiagnosed uh, on its first round. So you go through and get another diagnosis. So after that point, my diagnosis stayed the same. After that point, um, my bladder had to heal. And then um, I had six weeks of treatment with a drug called BCG. And BCG is, of all things, the bovine tuberculosis um, drugs. So it's actually a vaccine that is still in use in India, uh, given uh, to children to prevent tuberculosis. 
but it's again, it's again given to you intravesically. You go into the doctor's office. It's injected through your urethra into your bladder. You go home. You keep it in your bladder for two hours. So you turn. You're on your stomach. You're on your side. You're on your back. You're on your other side, and you go around like that for two hours, uh, fifteen minutes each side. Um, then you expel that, and um, then you have six treatments um, following that. So it's you know one right after the other. Yeah. Can I add something to that? There are different types of bladder cancer. A lot of the bladder cancer that we see in the United States is what we call non-muscle invasive, which means it's confined to the lining of the bladder. And your bladder is built so that it doesn't let all the nasty stuff that you're trying to get rid of when you pee back into your bloodstream. And so what happens is it's really hard to give you a pill or even an intravenous treatment that's gonna get into the bladder itself to actually attack those tumors. And that's why they put the liquid with either the mitomycin or most cases, the BCG, this weakened form of the tuberculosis virus directly into the bladder. And as Carrie mentioned, they have you turn around and make sure it's really touching the tumors, which might be on the inside of the bladder. And so it works directly on that. It triggers your own body to activate that. Oftentimes what they'll do beforehand is kind of scrape out that tumor. So think about this for just a second. Imagine that you have a beautiful green lawn and there's this one nasty or maybe two dandelions. And so you go and you dig it out because you don't want dandelions in your lawn. Well, bladder cancer is very much like that. And you might get all the roots, but then again, maybe you don't. And you might not notice some of the little puffs from that dandelion that blow off just before you got there. And then you have to think about the, your lawn itself just might be prone to dandelions. Maybe there's something in your grass that's just making it more receptive to dandelions. So these are what we you know, know about bladder cancer. Sometimes the cells in the lining of your bladder are very receptive to cancer changing the cells into a tumor because the cells themselves have been changed by things you might have been exposed to. So for instance, some people who are smokers have an elevated risk of bladder cancer. Other people that work with chemicals also. So, you know, just like dandelions can come back in your yard, bladder cancer can come back. And that's where it becomes really significant. So when it becomes what we call muscle invasive, where it works itself into the muscle layer of the bladder, no longer in that protective inner lining, then there's always the risk because your circulatory system and lymphatic system run through muscle tissue that that cancer can spread. And so some patients who are diagnosed with muscle invasive disease, it's actually beneficial and standard of care to remove the bladder itself because that reduces the risk that that cancer will get worse. It doesn't necessarily eliminate it 100%, but it significantly reduces that risk. So some people have their bladders removed. And yes, in fact, I know I'm just thinking you're thinking you can live without your bladder. Well, you can. 
what you need is what they call a urinary diversion and they create a new way to get that waste product that urine outside of your body it doesn't happen for everybody and there are options there and you can live a very full life without a bladder so those are the most common types of bladder cancer and then you always worry about the possibility of having advanced disease and many women are diagnosed at a a later stage because they don't get in for that early diagnosis because they're not necessarily giving it that much mind. I actually had a patient call and I just want to share this, but I actually had somebody who called and actually told me, you need to tell all women that they should pee in the shower. And I asked her why. She said, well, because that's how I saw blood in my urine. Otherwise, I would not have noticed. Now, I don't think we can say that as an organization, but it is an important thing that paying attention to blood in your urine is really significant. Your analogy about dandelions is probably the best analogy that I've heard to explain how cancer can metastasize. Is that the correct word? Yes, and how it progresses. because. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily metastasize where it goes outside of the bladder tissue, but it just progresses within. And that's the whole point of getting rid of a bladder is you don't want it to keep going into the fat layers or nearby surrounding tissues. For men, that would be the prostate, but for women, that would be the cervix um, and the urethra and other parts. And you know, because the urinary system is made up of urethelial cells throughout, those are the cells that line the bladder, sometimes the cancer can show up in the kidneys because there's a place in the kidneys that has urethelial cells, it's called the renal pelvis, or the ureters, the tubes that lead from the kidneys to the bladder, that, that's how urine gets into your bladder in the first place. And even in through the urethra, which is the tube that leads from the bladder outside the body, those are all urethelial cells. And cancer within that whole area is considered bladder cancer or urethelial carcinoma is the technical term. And um, I know that it may not be ideal to discuss urinating in the shower, but um, one of the important things that we do here on the show is keep it real. That sounds like practical advice for women, because as you were saying, a lot of times it's not exactly easy to, to determine where the blood is coming from. Yeah, can I add something to that? I think that women are used to thinking about blood with regard to their gynecological exams, but I think that they're not used to talking about their urine. And I don't know why it would be so much harder to talk about urine than, you know, menstrual periods, but it is, you know, um, and the thought of going to a urologist, you know, made me sick to my stomach. I mean, you walk in the room and all you see are old men for acres. <laughs> You know, um, and it's very, it, it just doesn't feel like something that's happening to you. But um, again, that's one of the connections that Beacon really made for me is I was able to talk with a lot of people about, you know, urine and about my bladder. And you need to have that freedom in order to adjust to what you're dealing with. Carrie, 
you have been writing about your cancer since February of 2013. How has writing and publishing your blog over the past nine years changed your life and your understanding of the nature of personal storytelling? The blog has really changed my life. So my husband, uh, we used to take the paper copy of the Chicago Trib Tribune, and my husband kept seeing an ad for um, people to pitch blogs with Chicago Now, which was under the umbrella of the Tribune. And I kept saying, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, you know, whatever, but ignoring it. He would keep asking me, are you doing it? So one day I, I went into my desk and laying on my desk was the ad cut out for me with a note that said, apply. And so I pitched my blog and then I got a call from Jimmy Greenfield, who um, was the community organizer, the, sorry, the community manager for our group and I started writing the blog. And again, I think that one of the huge advantages for me in this was being a part of a community of bloggers. And bloggers talk, a lot of bloggers anyway, talk about a lot of really personal things. And I would say at least 50% of the people writing blogs uh, for Chicago now have been touched pretty directly by cancer. They've lost a family member to cancer. They've had it, even if their blog is about the Cubs, you know, um, they have had these experiences. And so in a lot of our training uh, workshops and so on, you know, we really got to know each other uh, that way. So we, we really became a, a community of writers and talked a lot about how to present things um, about ourselves. I remember at one point um, reading something by the writer Annie Lamott, and she said that people have asked her um, how she feels about writing negative things about people in her life. And her response was, well, if they don't want me to write about the things that they did, then they probably should have lived better. And I've always kind of taken that to heart that, you know, this is my story. And I get to tell my story. And as a result of telling my story, I found this whole new community and it was a community of readers. It's not a massive community, but I have developed some very good relationships and, and strong relationships with people I've never met in the flesh. In some cases, being able to turn them to beacon to give them information about bladder cancer. In other cases, just simply to sympathize in this you know, this process. I mean, it's, it's um, a very alienating experience to have cancer. And I think that the blog and readers of the blog and all of that really helped uh, form that community. I think that writing the blog has been a part of my healing. And I don't think I realized that storytelling would in and of itself do some work for me. Um, in terms of how I felt and how I was able to move forward. Um, it's also been a, a form of advocacy for me. So I've been able to push out some information to people and hope that they see it. Stephanie, we talked a little bit about treatment. Um, can we talk about how that might correlate to high sur survival rates? Absolutely. 
you know, um, a lot of people have, some people have almost a one and done treatment. They just go in, they remove that tumor and that's all they need. Once they've taken a tumor out with a process that they refer to as a T-U-R-B-T. So that means transurethral resection of the bladder tumor. So they use a slightly bigger instrument instead of the cystoscope that goes through with fiber optic camera into your bladder to look around, this is a little more substantial in that it has a little wire on the end that can actually be electrified. So it can actually slice out the tumor a little bit um, and remove it. And then they take that tumor out and they look at it under the microscope. The pathologist looks at it. That's the medical expert that deals specifically with things like cancer tumors. They look at the cells of disease and they help make a diagnosis. And that diagnosis is what drives treatment. And so when you have this TURBT, sometimes that's enough and the bladder cancer will never come back. But most patients will need to have a routine, what they call, we refer to as a scope, where they go back in and do that cystoscopy to peek around because you just never know. And then other times, um, if they have a recurrence, they might just be able to have more of those TURBTs to clean out the tumors. But if that tumor looks like it has very aggressive cells, then they know, just like thinking back to the story about the dandelion I told you, if you see that that dandelion is very aggressive and angry looking, you might want to spray dandelion killer all over your lawn. And that's what the intravesical treatment can actually do for you. So that rate of recurrence is important and significant because it can come back. But if it's very aggressive looking, they might suggest, as I mentioned earlier, bladder removal surgery. And for patients who might have other health concerns where they really, it's a significant surgery. They use a piece of your small intestines to create a way for your urine to get out. So it really does often rearrange all of your internal plumbing in your pelvis. For women, that means perhaps uh, a hysterectomy, and it might end up, depending on where the tumor is, with a slightly shorter vagina, which can make sex difficult. Um, for men, they take out the prostate and some of the other tissues nearby, and that can damage nerves in the area, which are essential for continence, but also for um, controlling erections. So sexual function is not something that people who are diagnosed with cancer worry about, but it's certainly one of the long-term implications of a treatment that perhaps people need to you know, be open to discussing what's important to you, um, and talking to your doctor about the type of surgery that they could do that would reduce the risk of a, a negative sexual impact. Um, and then, you know, if you are not in good condition to have that surgery, you can probably do a lot with combination of radiation, chemotherapy, and smaller surgeries to take out that tumor. And we call that trimodality or bladder preservation. And that can also have a good effect for some people, not for every patient, but for some people. So um, you know, these are all significant. And when cancer is diagnosed way later, in particular for women and for men who just don't get into care, 
and they're not diagnosed until they've had a metastasis, then um, there are treatments now beyond even the chemotherapy, which is still the standard of care because it works the best, but there are other options like immunotherapy or antibody drug conjugates or even targeted therapies that look at the genetic makeup of your tumor and say, well, your tumor has this genetic flaw, which means it's more likely or less likely to respond to a treatment that we have, that we know unlocks that genetic flaw and allows that treatment in. And so these are all options. And a lot of those options have happened in the last five or six years for advanced disease patients. It's really been amazing to see in the last few years what has gone on because of research. And Beacon, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network supports research, and so do many other organizations. But we're now beginning to see a lot more interest in bladder cancer research. And that's only going to be more good news for patients because there are more options. Stephanie, you have a staunch supporter with you today. Oh, I think you're talking about Sir Barks a lot. He loves the fact that I work from home now because of the pandemic. And uh, unfortunately, they all insist that I have my office in the den where they have access. So even though I've closed him out, he does make an awful lot of noise. And he's just making sure that you're all paying attention. Exactly. We spoke a little bit about reasons why bladder cancer is sometimes diagnosed later in the progression of the disease in women. Are there currently any guidelines about um, specific screenings um, that could help more women catch bladder cancer earlier? Well, you know what? It's good news that there are a lot of interesting companies that are working on identifying the golden biomarker and I do say golden because it would be a urine biomarker because wouldn't it be nice if you could pee in a cup and they could dip it in a, you know, dip a little paper stick in there and say, yep, you have a problem or not. We don't have that yet. There's nothing very significant that's been shown to be accurate and precise. You know, to, there are a lot of things that are on the market that are, you know, coming out that have a lot of false positives. And then that requires you to go through a lot of additional testing. So it's really important, even when you just go into the regular doctor, if they do a urine test and they, they mention, well, you've had a little bit of blood in your urine, we noticed that, but we'll keep an eye on it. Make sure you call them back and find out what's going on so that you're not just letting it slide. I think that's an important message for all men and women because we don't know what we don't know. And so that's certainly a big deal. Um, I think that, you know, looking at doing a standardized screen, we just don't have it. We, for prostate, men have the PSA test and they can look at elevated PSA and see who is the candidate for further testing. But for bladder cancer, we don't really have that yet. Although I am very encouraged that there are lots of very talented researchers working on this and then also some biotech companies that are, you know, really putting some money into doing this testing and finding the right biomarkers so they can screen more accurately and effectively and cost effectively. We mentioned earlier that there is a discrepancy between um, both survival rates 
And um, I believe in diagnosis rates um, of women and people of color. And I'm sure that there are a whole host of factors, but can you share what you believe are some obstacles that women and people of color face when it comes to getting tests or screening? Well, I think some of the obstacles are generally the usual well-known obstacles in that, you know, if there's not trust, you know, when you see patients of any color who have a healthcare provider, we know that women and men who are not in a risk group tend to end up with a later diagnosis because they don't know that they have the disease or they put off reporting the signs and symptoms. I think that's a big issue. And when people get, can get into care, um, there are some studies that are showing some discrepancies in the kind of treatment options that are available, depending on who you are, where you live, whether you're in an urban institution with a large academic hospital nearby, or if you're living rurally. We know that 70 or 80% of all bladder cancer patients are being seen in their community practices and only 20 or 30% are going to the leading institutions that have state-of-the-art testing, screening, and all of those things. So I, it really does become a challenge of where you are, what access to care you have, and then again, your trust in the system and finding people that look like you for women and even for anybody who has different race or ethnicity in the healthcare system is a challenge because the main physician practice that treats bladder cancer are the urologist. And it has, it's a, a urologist is a surgeon first, and traditionally that has been a male profession. We are now seeing the younger urologists have a much bigger presence of women in it, which is wonderful, and also a more diverse representation. When you're not seeing somebody who looks like you, then it makes it even more of a challenge. And some women may not feel comfortable going to a male urologist. And you think of a urologist as being your, your husband's doctor, your dad's doctor, because they know that they treat prostate and they treat um, sexual function issues, but they don't necessarily pay attention to all things urologic. Um, Rhonda, I just wanted to add something to what um, Stephanie was saying earlier about barriers to diagnosis. A couple of things. One is that in talking with Dr. Steinberg, who is a national expert on uh, bladder cancer, he used to be at the University of Chicago. He's now in New York. The thing that he told me in an interview is that GPs are not required in medical school to do a urology round. So um, they're not going to have a lot of familiarity with urology. And, you know, they can't do rounds in everything. So um, urology is just one that is considered, I mean, they can elect to do that, but it's not required. So that's one thing. The other thing is, particularly with women, women and blood are associated as normal, healthy things. Um, we generally do not see blood in a negative light with women. And I, I've written actually a paper about this, but it, it tends to signify that you're fertile, you know, that you're 
doing what you you know should be doing. Um, I think that the fact that you have a UTI is often linked to having sex. And again, that's you know good, healthy heterosexual you know behavior that you're doing all of that. So you're kind of fitting that cultural norm by by having those things. And I think one of the things that has been really instructive for me is that many years before, about five years before I was diagnosed with cancer, my husband had um, blood in his urine. And in less than 24 hours, they had him in for a cystoscopy, for a CT, the whole workup. I mean, it was like they could not rush him fast enough in there to get something done. I mean, no one said to him, oh, it was probably just a UTI. Um, and I guess it, it sort of blew my mind how, you know, and he ended up, you know, thankfully not having bladder cancer. But I do think that there are perceptions that men in blood, not okay. Women in blood, normal, healthy. And so I, I think we have to got, I think we have to start thinking a little bit differently about that and taking responsibility as women to say to our GPs, look, I wonder if this could be something more. We want to invite you to contact us, comment about this podcast and ask more questions about bladder cancer. Drop us a line at communitymedia at govst.edu. Also, please visit the GSU podcast webpage, where you'll find useful takeaways and accessible community resources. The address is in the podcast description. If you know someone who would benefit from the work being done by Beacon, or you would like to support Dr. Morris's bladder cancer advocacy and her Walk for Bladder Cancer campaign, links will be on our podcast webpage. That address is in the podcast description. Let's discuss what comes next once the treatment protocol has concluded. Can you share some of the things that happened post-treatment? Yeah, um, I thankfully was in a um, my local cancer support group, um, which is a really good thing. I think people think that post-treatment, with any luck, you're technically in remission. You have a cystoscope that shows that you're you're clear. Um, and I think people around you assume that you're going to feel relieved and life is going to go back to normal. But the statistics tell us a far different story. And the story is that anxiety spikes um, after uh, going into remission. It's anxiety tends to be even higher after you're in remission than it is when you're in the midst of treatment. And I think one of the things that happens is you've gone from being monitored very carefully, being going through treatment, so you feel like something's happening to help you, and then boom, you're just kind of cut loose. And it, it just is, it, it's just a very difficult thing to adjust to. But then after that, um, you have chronic, um, I mean, you have this chronic anxiety, which is just really increased um, by the fact that you are having regular scans. So after I went through um, my treatment, every three months for the first little while, 
I had to have a CT, a urine test, and a cystoscopy. And both the CT and the cystoscopy tend to be, I mean, are very invasive. Um, in a CT, they inject um, a dye into your system, and then that is able to show them what they need to see. And then the cystoscopy is putting the, the camera uh, inside your bladder. Um, so every time you're facing one of those scans, you develop scanxiety. So you have the scan and then the weight is on. How, what am I gonna find out? What's gonna happen? Um, and typically you don't happen until you go to see your doc for the cystoscopy. And, you know, it's just really hard. Um, you go from three months, they elongate to six months, then they go to a year. I am still in the every year uh, treatment. Um, or not treatment, but in the every every year cystoscope. And in fact, I just went in today to get my blood test. I mean, sorry, my urine test. And then I have my cystoscopy next Wednesday. I don't know if at that point, because that will be around my 10 year uh, mark. I don't know if I will be, you know, given every other year at that point. I don't know what he will recommend. But um, it's still pretty intense after the treatment is over. It takes a while for things to, to feel okay. So while you are technically in remission, um, the fact remains that you are actually living with cancer. Would you say that's accurate? I would say that that's accurate. And I will say I think it's different for different people. I certainly... Um, the one person who told me that cancer was a gift to me was a person who had cancer. Um, so I think the divergence within the cancer community is as broad as it is outside. I think some people feel like they're done with cancer once it's treated and they move on. I'm not one of those people. I mean, for me, it will always have at least a small part of my, of my identity. So um, I, I do think it's different depending on who you are, but I, for me, it's always, it's always there. I think that, you know, what Carrie is really referring to is in the long term, you know, you have issues of survivorship, you know, the things that knowing that you're going to have regular scans and there's always the chance of a recurrence, it impacts you and it, you have to fit that into everything else in your life and what's going on. So there's certainly challenges to survivorship of living your full life. For some people, it makes them more aware, you know, colors are brighter, foods taste better because every day is a gift. And I think it's really up to the individual. But again, it's how do you want to accept your survivorship as you move forward? Carrie, what would you say to someone who just concluded their bladder cancer treatment what would you want this person to know about going forward this person and their their caregivers i would say the old cliche it's a marathon and not a sprint um this is a long-term sort of thing bladder cancer has the highest recurrence rate of any cancer it's one of the most expensive cancers to have because of the, you know, the way that, of the invasiveness of the testing and the amount of recurrence. 
But I would also say that for most people, it's not a death sentence. So, um, you know, you're, you're probably, I mean, I know I look back at the very beginning when I was diagnosed in August um, of 2012, and I had tickets for Leonard Cohen in November of 2012. And I was worried in August that I would not live long enough to see Leonard Cohen sing. And I look back on that and think, oh my God, what a drama queen, you know. Um, but, you know, there, there, it, it wasn't that severe for me, but it does bring you to that brink of um, your mortality. And I think that um, for survivors, I, I'm sorry, for caregivers, I think that caregiving is exhausting. And I think they need support from other caregivers. And I think that they have their own set of issues. And I really, really encourage caregivers to reach out uh, and find things that nurture them because it is a tough haul for caregivers. You make a great point, Carrie. I want to add something to that issue about caregivers because there's so much that you know a, a loved one often is doing or a adult child is doing for a parent who might have bladder cancer. One of the things I think for any cancer patient to really, you know, for, for that caregiver to understand, for the people that care about the family that's impacted by any kind of cancer, whether it's bladder cancer or whatever, when you offer to help, you just say, you know, tell me how I can help. I think it's really important for all those friends and family out there to think about what you've just done is you've just given the caregiver another assignment because now they have to think through how can they be of assistance instead of saying, I am perfectly happy to make dinner. You tell me what night and I will bring dinner one night or I am coming over to your house on Tuesday. I will do your laundry for you. I will walk your dog. I will do whatever. And to be more proactive as a friend who's offering help, it helps take some of that pressure off of both the patient and especially off the caregiver who now no longer has to think about the assignment that they want to give you. And I want to piggyback on that with Stephanie. When I was um, diagnosed, I was um, new to Chicago. We had moved in 2011 and we just didn't know very many people. My husband had a job in Normal, which is two hours south of where we live. So he was gone most of the week and my daughter was 13. And it's awful to have a 13 year old have to deal with any aspect of caregiving. And, you know, she saw, I mean, BCG for me was very painful. And so she saw me in pain and she had to deal with that, you know. Um, and, you know, luckily we were able to um, find her some support um, at the local high school and, you know, all of that. But um, I just think that, that what Stephanie says is really pertinent. And so I didn't know a ton of people, but two things happened that I would give as an example of what she's saying. One was a colleague of mine at GSU, Maristella Zell, came to me and said, 
I don't know you very well and I don't know what I can do, but I know I could give you rides to the doctor. So if you need a ride to the doctor, let me know. And I, that just cleared a path. She gave me her telephone number. I knew that's something I could ask her for. Um, so I think being specific uh, about what you're willing to do um, is um, super helpful. The other thing is that my next door neighbor um, at the time happened to be a, a cancer researcher at the University of Chicago. And while normally I recommend that people don't give advice to cancer givers uh, to people with cancer, I mean, no one could know more about bladder cancer, you know, than the person with bladder cancer. You know, you, you're not going to have any hot tips for them. Um, but in this case, she had a lab where she was working uh, with cancer. And she said, bladder cancer, you know what? I know Gary Steinberg. He is a good friend of mine. Let me get you connected. And she was able to help me get a second opinion um, with Steinberg and his pathologists. And it was tricky because my insurance wouldn't cover it. And hospitals don't know how to take cash. You know, they, they don't know how to work that. So I needed help. So they gave me a patient navigator and I had Steinberg's nurse and I had Steinberg. And Steinberg is such a class act that after he saw my pathology slides, and saw what my doctor was, you know, looking at doing. He said, um, I don't want her to come in for an appointment. It'll just cost her 500 bucks. So I'm just going to stand here and you tell her what I'm telling her. I mean, I can, I'm hearing him say all of this. And so he, um, you know, let me know that my doc was doing exactly the right thing. So I think that if you have connections like that, oh my gosh, I will forever be indebted to my neighbor's name is Carrie to carry for making that connection with me. It just, you know, it was so important. So if you really have something to offer, let people know what it is. Um, it's just so helpful. I want to go back to August of 2012. You had mentioned that you felt like a drama queen for being worried about whether or not you would make it to the concert in November. Um, and it makes me think about the fact that I think that most people's reaction, you know, prior to understanding what their, their situation is, that kind of fear. Um, but you've made it through and we've discussed a little bit about how um, survival rates are particularly high. Have you ever had someone who may have known that the survival rates are high say like, oh, well, you know, you're so lucky to have bladder cancer because that's so treatable. I simply cannot tell you how many people have told me, oh, bladder cancer, that's a good kind of cancer. Yeah, the survival rates. And, and for me, I mean, aside from that initial reaction of am I going to make it to November, um, for me, the biggest concern was not death. My biggest concern was fear of losing my bladder. And the reason that is the case is that if you're stage one and you have high-grade bladder cancer, you're treated with BCG and it returns, the standard response is that you need to have your bladder removed, even at stage one. And, you know, it's life changing. I mean, um, many, many women lose the ability to have sex. And 
you know, I was only 50 uh, at the time. I mean, even at 60, I mean, sex is important to me. That was just, you know, devastating to me to think about um, as a possibility, not to mention dealing with a urinary diversion. It, it just was so overwhelming uh, trying to imagine all of that into my life. And then hearing people say that it was a, a good kind of cancer. You know, there really is no good kind of cancer. It, it doesn't exist. And I, I think it, it's, you know, that minimizing is so, so destructive to your state of mind. It's just so harmful. You use the word high grade. Does that mean aggressive? Yes. There's low grade and high grade, and low grade tends to stay low grade. Um, high grade tends to progress. So if you have stage one high grade, the, the, it's an aggressive thing. It's more likely to progress to stage two and, you know, on. Stephanie, let's talk about beacon. I would imagine that breast cancer and lung cancer have plenty of advocacy groups, but Beacon is the only um, bladder cancer adv advocacy group, correct? Well, there are some other groups that are maybe starting up, and there are others that address bladder cancer as part of their overall cancer, but we are the only bladder cancer specific and the longest running bladder cancer specific group. We have, uh, we're a national organization. We're a founding member of the World Bladder Cancer Patient Coalition because this is not just an American issue, it's a global issue. And, um, but we are really taking care of those people in the community who have bladder cancer here in the United States. So Beacon was started in 2005 when Diane zapersky Quali and her husband, John, were really frustrated at the lack of resources and information for patients specifically about bladder cancer, and also at the lack of attention from the research community. And so they started the organization in their kitchen table, and we're now a staff of 10, and we are a national organization. And as I told you earlier, we're working now remotely because of the pandemic. But I think it's really important that, you know, some of the things that we do is provide education and support for people who are affected by bladder cancer. We support research and we also raise awareness because we do not want anyone to learn that you can get cancer in your bladder in their doctor's office when they're given that diagnosis. So we want everyone to know that in the early stages, urgency, frequency, hematuria, those are signs of bladder cancer, but they could be something else and you should get checked out. For men, for women, regardless of their color, these are some of the warning signs that bladder cancer might be there. And it's really important. Every May is Bladder Cancer Awareness Month. We advocated for that. And we do a lot of awareness messaging both in the United States and globally about Bladder Cancer Awareness Month. And one of the things that's really exciting is we have um, a walk to support bladder cancer. It helps fund the research that we do. It helps make all of the services that we provide for patients, the education materials, the webinars that Carrie referred to early on in our talk, those are all available free of charge because people 
have contributed through the walk. And we are real excited. I'm actually going to be in Chicago for the May 7th walk. So it's good that I'll be able to see all of you. Hopefully you'll all come out. The team from school will come out and we'll get a team going and be part of Carrie's team. But we're looking forward to the walk. And I think it's important to recognize that if you have questions about bladder cancer or about beacon, and that's how you pronounce it, beacon, like beacon of hope, we're not beacon, we're B-C-A-N dot O-R-G on your nearby www website so visit us on the website and anything that you need is there access is available and free of charge 24 hours a day seven days a week um for bladder cancer to be the sixth leading cancer i'm i understand that the science doesn't provide for a specific screening mechanism but should there be maybe a, a an industry standard of instead of the protocol being to give you an antibiotic like at the very first sign of blood being given the scope that you've discussed we'd like to think that but the general practitioner and a gyn physician in particular when you're talking about women don't have a cystoscope in their practice. They don't have that as their regular routine equipment. So that's where it becomes a problem. And you need to go to the expert. That would be the medical urologist that's the expert. And they have all the tools to do that look inside. You know, some of the things I think that are important when you're looking at urologic guidelines they're adding guidelines about hematuria and recurrence and all these other things. And that's specifically looking at bladder cancer. But um, I know that the American Urological Association this last year put out a new hematuria guideline that they included some of the other medical professionals. So hopefully that will help raise that level of awareness. I think with urinary tract infections, um, when you suspect that, even if there's no biological evidence of urine cytology with little microbes saying that you have a urinary tract infection. Treating it is low hanging fruit. There's low risk to treating it. You know, people take antibiotics all the time. And so it's really easy. And if women don't know that they should be asking for, hey, I shouldn't be coming to you for the third round of antibiotics. You know, as Carrie mentioned, a lot of people, will call their doctor and say, I have burning, I have frequency. And you know, they, I've had many urinary infections over my life, but I've never had blood in my urine. So I don't know how many people with a, a urinary tract infection actually have blood in their urine. But if they do, I think it's important if you don't see any evidence and the antibiotics don't fix it the first time, when you don't know, go to a pro. I always say, you don't take your Jaguar, the mechanic on the corner you take them to somebody that does this on a regular basis um so you know whether it's a jaguar or you know whatever car you have this is the vehicle that you have that's the bladder you have and you want to go to somebody that knows what they're doing you heard it here jaguar nation jaguars require specialty mechanics well they require specialty tools i think more than anything, but they require the specialty tools. You want to go someplace where they have the tools that you need to make that diagnosis. 
Carrie, you wrote about feeling completely separate from your cancer diagnosis in 2012, as if it were happening to someone else. What made you come to grips with your cancer? Um, I think it started to become something real and then also something I could cope with the more I had community. So I uh, discovered my local cancer support center. Um, I discovered Beacon. And then I have an amazing doctor um, who does not shame me for doing research. You know, he doesn't do the old, old Dr. Google. You know, I mean, I, I'm an academic and my, um, the way I cope with things is I research them. And he will, anytime I go to his office, even now, he'll say, so what have you been reading? What have you learned that I need to know? Um, and we'll talk about new research, you know, that's out there. Um, that I think, you know, gave me a sense of control um, in my own health. But um, the other thing I think is that because my, my cancer support center offered many things to me um, to, to help me cope, one was mindfulness, and that has been huge for me. And I am not the meditating type, but I have become the meditating type. Um, but secondly, was getting into therapy. And one of the things that I think people with cancer maybe even forget is that cancer doesn't happen to you in a vacuum. It's not like you're going along living your lives and then you have cancer and it's this cancer experience. Then you deal with cancer and you come out and continue living your life. I mean, it happens in the middle of everything. And I think it ha it, what happens is that it triggers all sorts of stuff that you've been dealing with your whole life. Um, and, you know, for me, one of the things that happened, and, and I think this is not infrequent at all, but my father had no contact with me for a year after my diagnosis. And I think it's very common for people to be kind of abandoned by friends and whatever during cancer. And, you know, that's not, that's something that came from a, a long history of a relationship with the person, you know, I mean, it's just one more thing added to it. So it's cancer plus abandonment and neglect from a parent, you know, being put together. Um, and so, I, I think seeing it as a part of the tapestry, you know, of life was really very helpful. And because it, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, therapy just offered so much um, to helping me resolve some of the issues. I mean, so I, I really recommend counseling. I really recommend well uh, doing things that help your well-being, whether it's yoga or mindfulness um nutrition various things like that i think that will really help you get a handle on what you're dealing with so therapy would you say that that was crucial to actually missing the anniversary of your cancer back in 2019 absolutely i think that you know 2019 was the first time that i didn't kind of feel the dread of it coming I, you know, the, 
my uh, date is August 29th. And that's right about the time school starts. And so for many years, it was just that coming together of the experience. And I love the beginning of fall semester and it kind of ruined the beginning of fall semester for me. But 2019 came along and it was like five days later, I was like, oh, I missed my cancer, my cancerversary. Um, and I think it was because I had really gained some confidence, you know, that um, I maybe I won't ever have a recurrence. And also because I'd, I'd reached, I'd had some resolutions uh, and, you know, because of therapy, had resolved some things and was living a better life in general. Stephanie mentioned that she will be joining you um, on May 7th for the annual Bladder Cancer Awareness Walk. What can the Jaguar Nation do to help you be successful in this year's Walk for Bladder Cancer? Well, I would absolutely love if people would go to the, uh, the Beacon site and find my team. And my team is called Cancer is Not a Gift. And join my team and come out on May 7th and walk with us at Northerly Island. It's going to be a beautiful location. It will be fun. It's not intense. Um, if you want to run, you can run. No one will stop you. Um, and I just really think that, you know, even a small amount of money donated to Beacon makes a difference. I mean, Beacon's not, I, I get a little frustrated with, with some other cancers, you know, a lot of the awareness things that they have and all, all the merchandise that goes along with it. And absolutely everything is available in pink in October, you know, bladder cancer isn't like that. I mean, we need awareness because we don't have it. But Beacon also makes use of that money for research. So we now have um, research. I mean, for 30 years, the treatment of bladder cancer didn't change. But because of Beacon and the money being pushed into Beacon, research discovered new approaches for advanced states um, of bladder cancer. So it has changed, literally changed and elongated people's lives. So I really, um, I urge you to help us do that, but um, coming and joining us for a walk is also really nice. It really feels good. And I'm just gonna add that dogs are usually welcome. Are they welcome in this park? They are welcome at Northerly. Yes, they Excellent. are. Stephanie and Carrie, thank you so much for taking your time with us today to talk about something that I know a lot of people in our community probably didn't know much about, um, but need to know more about. So thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you so much. I am so grateful to all of you um, to um, use your resources to, to talk about this issue. It means the world to me that you've done it. And thank you for talking about Beacon. We are always happy to help Carrie and everybody that comes to visit our website, bcan.org. If you have any questions about bladder cancer, we probably have an answer there. And if not, just send us an email at info at bcan.org and we will respond. C6, 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 C6. 
I want to thank our very own Dr. Carrie Morris, Professor of English and Director of Writing Across the Curriculum, and Dr. Stephanie Chisholm, Director of Education and Advocacy at the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network for their expertise today. We'll be back soon with more community-driven conversations about health and wellness. Listeners, we want to hear from you. If you've been influenced by our podcast, please go to our site and send us an email. The link is available in the podcast description. This podcast is sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences in partnership with the College of Health and Human Services at Governor State University. I'm Rhonda Jackson, and I've been your host and coordinating producer today. Our executive producer is Deborah James. Our student research assistant is Nuha Abdusalam. Our senior consulting journalist is Randall Wiseman. Our music is by Charles DeMazer, professionally known as CSET. Special thanks to Digital Learning and Media Design for sponsoring the following production expertise. Our director today is Uriah Berryhill. Our producer and editor is Tyann Simmons. And our graphics are done by Amanda Martinez.